0: This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Today on Dreamland, we're going to have Riz Virk back with us for his fifth visit to the show. Uh, Riz is always a very popular guest, or he wouldn't be coming back so so often. I kind of, I never would say anything to my guests, but he's you you, you guys like Riz, and I don't blame you. I do too. He's a brilliant, brilliant man. We're going to be talking again about the simulation, but this time about a way of leaving it that is going to surprise you a lot, but it is possible to see beyond the simulation and it is there. We're going to talk about all of that, but before we start, I'd like to tell you about a couple of things I'm doing August the 17th to the 20th. I'm going to be at the Lilydale Assembly, the Assembly of the Spiritualist Church of america in lily in lilydale new york you can find out more about it at lilydaleassembly.org i'm going to be talking about the science of the paranormal uh specifically my subject is going to be love beyond life the afterlife revolution we're also going to have a showing of communion and a QA, which should be a lot of fun Mitch Horowitz will be there the same weekend, The Power of Self-Transformation. It's going to be a, it's a lovely place. It's a charming area, uh, and you'll enjoy yourself thoroughly. So go to lilydaleassembly.org and get some tickets and meet me at the, uh, at the assembly. Now, the next thing I'm going to talk about is in Barcelona. And if you're in anywhere in Europe, don't miss this because this is going to be a blast. This is 22 September, the 24th September, at the resort Grand Hotel Rey Don Yami in uh, Barcelona, which is one of the coolest cities in the world. And the Ramblas is most, one of the most fun places to be on planet Earth at any time of the day, but especially after the sun goes down. You, you World Congress. I'm going to be talking about them in depth and bringing some new material. So, if you're in Europe or if you're not in Europe, why not go to Barcelona this summer? It's we can travel again after all. And as you know, when I'm at these conferences, uh, I'm very approachable. I'm not. I don't hide in a room. I don't play the celebrity game. I'm not into that at all, as you know. Now, all that said. Uh, Let's go back and let's add Riz to the stream. Good morning, Riz, or good afternoon. I don't know exactly where you are. Welcome back. Thanks, Wintley. It's great to be back. I'm actually in
1: Boston for part of the summer right now, so it's afternoon here.
0: (laughs) Afternoon there. Well, okay, and it's a lovely, cool morning here in California. Nobody hit me. I know it's probably not like that in most of the United States, but it is that here. Okay, now... Some time ago, Riz, we talked about the simulation. You're probably one of the world's leading experts on this idea that this may be a simulation. And as we get on deep into this this wonderful new book you've written, which is going to feel to listeners like you've come out of left field, I'm going to talk about... Well, maybe say what I said when I read the book, and I sent you a blurb, which is now on the back cover. Thank you very much. Rizvurk's inspiring book of insights into, and listen to this, folks. You're not going to expect it. Yogananda's great classic has moved me deeply and brought me the excitement of new discoveries. The lessons he has crafted and the wisdom he has brought are a joy to experience and Saver, I have been a student of yoga, not a, not so much a practitioner of physical yoga, for a long time. This is my uh, copy of How to Know God, uh, the Pathanjali, which I have probably read 50 times, as you can see from the condition of the book. This is a book I took with me on my communion author tour, one of the hardest, and probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And I would read it on the plane between humiliation sessions that I I endured in the media for many, many weeks. (laughs) And it was a real blessing. All right. Now, what has in the world has Yogananda to do with leaving the simulation? Well, let me tell you about what the simulation is first, folks. It is the time stream we are in the time stream. That is to say, we are in the simulation. Now, tell us more about the simulation, Riz, and how it works.
1: Sure, absolutely. So, you know, this book, as you said, some might think it's out of left field, but, you know, when I started to investigate this idea of the simulation, you know, I was coming at it from the point of view of Silicon Valley and virtual reality and augmented reality. And you might recall the story that I told uh, last time where I was playing a game of VR ping pong. And at the end of the game, uh, the game was so responsive it fooled my brain into thinking I was playing a real game of table tennis. And I tried to put the paddle down on the table and I tried to lean against the table. And of course there was no table and so the paddle fell to the floor and I almost fell over. And, (laughs) And that led me to wonder whether we would be able to build something like the matrix uh, and how long it would take us with our current technology to get there. And and so that was what kind of led me into you know, this rabbit hole of simulation theory. Uh, but what I found was that that point, which I called the simulation point, which is a kind of technological singularity, we would reach that within a few decades, maybe 100 years at, at, at the longest. And the more that I looked into quantum physics, and then the more that I looked at what the Eastern mystics like Yogananda, like Patanjali were saying, I realized that they were saying something very similar, which is that we are already inside a world of illusion, or maya is the Sanskrit term that is used to describe it. And Yogananda says, you know, uh, talking about, he was here. He moved to the U.S. from India in 1920. He was the first sort of modern guru, as he's been called by some some biographers. And he was one of the first to come and live here in America, as opposed to someone who just visited. And so, you know, we owe a lot of awareness of yoga today, although most people today think of yoga as the asanas or the physical postures. We can talk more about that later. But, you know, with his book, which came out in 1945, or 1946, he was trying to describe what the quantum physicists were finding. And, you know, he said from science, then if it must be so let man learn the truth that there is no material world. It's warp and woof is Maya or illusion. And it's mirages of reality. It's mirages of reality break down under analysis. And so that sounded very much like what I was trying to say (laughs) with with my simulation book was that the physical world is not the real world. It is a construct. Uh, Now from a technology point of view, I look at it as a construct based on information that gets rendered for us. And that is what leads us to believe that this rendering like a video game uh, is the physical world for our characters inside a video game. You know, they see the wall seem real, right? The character can't move through the wall, but we're looking at it on the computer screen and we can see that this is all just a complex rendering. Uh, And so it turns out, you know, Yogananda was one of the Eastern Mystics, who really, I I think, uh, was attuned to the technology of his day. And in his day, the newest technology was, you know, motion pictures and film. And so he used the analogy that the world is like a movie, a projection. Uh, It's just a play of light on a screen. And if you've ever been in a movie theater and, you know, you've been so engrossed in the movie that you forget about what's going on around you, but then you take a moment to look around you, you realize, oh, we're in a movie theater. That's just a movie, but you had forgotten that for an instant. And so if he were alive today I believe he would use the analogy that it's an interactive movie it's a it's a type of play like Shakespeare used the analogy of the stage play life uh, you know right uh, yep it is a play that all the men and women are is a stage and all the men and women are merely players on the stage uh, and so I believe you know that yogananda would use this analogy if he were alive today and and so you know that's part of what led me to write this book, which came from an uh, an unexpected invitation, which I can tell you about if you like later.
0: Oh yeah, we do. We would like to hear it. But before we do that, we're going to go down some very interesting paths, because UFOs, for example, have got a lot to do with understanding Ooh. the reality of the simulation, and understanding why Ann Streber, after she died. As soon as she got back in touch with me, practically the first thing she said was, Whitley, it's all a game. Okay, we'll be right back. Them, Mitch Horowitz calls it in the preface, among the most important interpretations of visitor phenomena since Jacques Vallée's Passport to Magonia in 1969. Dr. Valle says in his foreword, the book cites fact after fact to build the case for in-depth realignment of public policy and public need. Diana Walsh Pasulka, author of American Cosmic, says, leads the way, and it's best that we listen, because the stakes have never been higher. EarthTech International President Hal Putoff says, them is exceedingly valuable. Leslie Kane, author of UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record, says groundbreaking in the truest sense of the word. Bigelow Aerospace VP Colm Kelleher says searing and masterful. Them. Available as an audiobook on Audible.com, Apple Books, and Amazon. Available as a hardcover and paperback everywhere. Available as a Kindle on Amazon.com. And you can go to UnknownCountry.com and order all of my books. Where are we going? Where have we come from? What secrets have been buried? What secrets have been lost? What is the truth about the Close Encounter experience? You have never heard any it of this before them. We're talking to Rizvork. His new book, a thrilling, enlightening, enriching book, is called Wisdom of a Yogi. You can get it, I'm sure, wherever books are sold. or You can get it through unknowncountry.com. And uh, his website is... uh, Zentrepreneur.com. You can click on that and you'll find R- Riz has got a lot of things to do for you. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you do on the website and what you have to offer. Sure. So,
1: you know, uh, th- that website is, is my author website. And so I go into, uh, you know, all of my different books Uh, which even though at first glance, some of them may seem unrelated, it turns out they all are related in some ways in the same way that wisdom of a Yogi is actually related to my books on simulation, as well as my books on Zen and entrepreneurship are related to my book on synchronicity called treasure hunt, which was the the first time I think I was on your program to talk about. And so people can download free, free chapters, of almost all of my books on the website, they can join my mailing list, they can contact me there. And then I have links to you know a number of articles that I've written, which often, you know, try to match this stuff with things like superheroes and science fiction right. and draw analogies.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, Riz is a, one of these people who's, uh, that we have often people like you on the show and who are affable, f- straightforward people on the surface but have amazing depth, <laughs> and that's exactly where we are here. Can you tell us a little bit about your your scientific background?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I started off studying computer science at MIT many years ago and, you know, was kind of ensconed in this very scientific and engineering world uh, that looked at the material world as, as all that there is, you know, the materialist paradigm. Uh, and as I became an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley and started a number of different companies, you know then I became um, uh, an investor in, in in quite a few companies uh and and really found that uh you know in the, the engineering and science mindset was kind of limited and so during this time. I was also living a bit of a double life, you know, uh, kind of like Shirley MacLaine, if you've ever (laughs) read uh, her books, where she would go and you know dance on stage in some 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 city in Europe, and then she would go visit a channeler the next day in that city. And so I would you know take time on weekends to go explore things like out of body experiences, lucid dreams, go to the Monroe Institute, uh, do shamanic. Dream work um, and, and and then more recently, I ended up at uh, Arizona State University after running a program at MIT called Play Labs at MIT, which was at the MIT Media Lab. Uh, and now I'm at Arizona State University working on a PhD on science and technology studies. so it's it's about how science works and how scientists work and what implications technology have on society and that gives me i think kind of a, a better perspective on on all of science and the scientific paradigm than if i were just in you know just one of those areas doing work
0: it's a very interesting combination of a of, of spiritual journey a profound spiritual journey and also a profound scientific journey and the way the two of them intersect in your life is quite fascinating because you can you can back up the the theories about how the world works uh, that come from really from ancient wisdom with science and, and that's unique it's it's absolutely unique. You mentioned uh, this uh, 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 this sort of I guess cave was it uh, with the light, shining and making shadows that is also like plato's cave which in which the the uh, observers are chained to their seats and they can only see straight ahead and they see shadows moving against a screen of events that are happening behind them this whole life of ours is about breaking those chains turning around and seeing what's really happening in the light because when you say it's we say it's a simulation what is a simulation of because it is a simulation of something and i think you're going to have some very interesting things to say about that probably rather unexpected question
1: <laughs> well yeah i mean i think the first of all plato's allegory of the cave is very relevant uh, to this idea of the simulation and to the idea of Maya. And, you know, if, if you read Plato's original story, there's someone who breaks his chains and he's called a philosopher by Plato. And <laughs> the philosopher goes out of the cave. And the first thing that happens is he's blinded, first of all, because there's too much light, right, coming in uh, because he's not used to it. He spent all of his life, you know, inside this cave, chained to the wall in the darkness, but seeing these shadows. And then later he comes back into the cave and tries to convince the folks that are still chained, that they're not, what they're seeing is not the real world. And of course, they're not interested in hearing this. They think he's going crazy, right? <laughs> and, you know, that story, I think, parallels what happens when, when people wake up uh, and people see what's outside the simulation. Like, I like to think that many religions were founded because somebody peaked outside the simulation, they saw what it was like, and then they came back, and then they tried to give us, uh, you know, analogies and using the metaphors and words of the time, Uh, and that might have been, you know, 2,000 years ago, might have been 50 years ago, whatever time we're locked in, we have to use those words and those terminologies to try to explain what is outside the simulation. For example, in the Bible, and the Quran, you know, they use these Uh, This analogy of the book of records and the recording angels. And so there are angels who are writing down who gets into heaven, who doesn't in the Bible. And in the Quran, it's even more explicit. There's the scroll of deeds where you write down the angels, write down every good deed and every bad deed. And well, you know, that's an analogy that was understandable 2000 years ago. Today, we wouldn't describe it that way. We don't need to have seven billion angels, one writing down our good right. deeds and our bad deeds so times two. Uh, we just need to have a computer process that records everything. And then you can replay all of those. Uh, and so the scroll of deeds really becomes like a video game session on YouTube. You know, like like my nephews, would, one of them when he was three, would tell my, my brother, his father, says, I want to watch that man and that woman playing Star Wars. And it was funny because he didn't want to watch the movie Star Wars and he didn't want to play the game, Star Wars. He wanted to watch a recording of people playing the video game, right? uh, which was on YouTube. And so, you know, today, when we think about our actions and what we've done in this life and, and being able to replay that as people like Danian Brickley, who I think might have introduced us way back in the day.
0: That's um, right. And he, know, he gave you a beautiful quote for your book, too. He
1: did, yes.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah Daniel says... Quote. Riz brings his scientific mind to the heart-centric subject of spiritual search, revisiting classic tales from the autobiography of a yoga for the modern world. And boy, is that an important thing to do, because you've brought up the, 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 the central reality of the Mahabharata, the Maya's palace, a number of times. And we are in Maya's palace. We live in the world of illusion. And they knew it way back when, way back when. And we've gone on a long journey of pretending we don't live in it, that this is real. And if you wanted to, you could, you could probably gather an enormous number of colleagues from the scientific world who would all say, this is all there is that Maya's palace is reality. And as we drift more and more into a left brain context, uh, listen, I'm going to interrupt this for just a second. I am a person who has a lot of trouble with chairs and I've been sort of moving around in here because this chair is strangely unstable for some reason and it's been fine. If I should disappear, folks, don't worry. I'll be right back. uh, because I'm, I'm afraid it might collapse. Okay. Now, uh, let's go on. We, um, we are in this situation. They have gotten, it's, you know, there's a book called, uh, the master and his emissary by Ian, uh, McGilchrist. That's about the brain and it's about the the, the left brain and the right brain. It's not the old 1970s shibboleth about left brain does this and right brain does that. It's a much more sophisticated modern text by a prominent neurologist. But he points out that the left brain is supposed to be following the right brain's intuitive journey, but instead it breaks, is broken off and it's taking its own journey. And that's what this has happened to the scientific community. They've lost contact with their inner selves, but you haven't.
1: Why not? Yeah, you know, I, I, I spend a lot of time with people in the scientific community. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly surprised that sometimes they're not quite as dogmatic as you think one on one right and so there's a social phenomenon that's going on here and you know as part of my research at uh at ASU I'm doing a research project on UFOs in academia and and I you know informally call it aliens in the ivory tower and <laughs> what I've been <laughs> what I've been doing is interviewing professors from many different fields uh from physics from uh, anthropology from religious studies and biology who have openly dared to study the UFO subject in some way. Uh, And, you know, of course, many of these professors will probably be be known to you, Whitley, and to to many of your audience, but some of them may not be. But, you know, what I'm really studying is how their colleagues reacted to them when they first ventured into the subject. And there's this stigma, you know, that's been put on uh, with studying this particular subject, and it gets lumped in with lots of other so-called fringe subjects in science. And you know, I asked one of them, well, um, you know, how did you know not to study this? Did somebody tell you, you, Mr. Scientist, should not study UFOs? And they said, no, nobody told me this, but we all knew it, right? It was a, it was a process of socialization that goes on. And because of that process, you know, you, you're not allowed to study things outside of what are called boundaries of science. And so there's a process of boundary work that has gone on. And so, you know, I've been fortunate in the sense that while I've been in that world, I haven't been exclusively in that world uh, because I've been able to spend so much time, you know, with Folks who are doing you know Buddhist uh, dream yoga and spending time with people who have been doing energy healing on the weekend, so while I had my day job, I was doing these other things, and that gave me a different perspective and I would have experiences and many of these these folks will have experiences on their own you know uh, that will convince you that something strange is is happening that 's different, and oftentimes for me, they would happen in dreams. So you know, for example, I, I don't know if we have time to tell a, a story, but yeah, of course I, we do. I, I, I went, I went home to visit my parents in Michigan. This was about 15 years ago, and I, I, I fell asleep on the couch because I was probably up really late watching science fiction, which I tend to do. And that early morning, I had a dream with my uncle in it, who was my dad's twin brother. And the uncle had died a number of years before. And I looked at him and I said, "Uncle, what are you doing here? You've passed away." And so for me, this was what I call a clue because it was unusual. I didn't dream about my uncle very often. Secondly, I recognized that something was off here. And I actually told him, (laughs) you know, you're dead. What are you doing here? And he just looked at me and he had with him a large sarcophagus, uh, like, you know, those Egyptian sarcophagi. Yeah. uh, And with a painting on top of a figure and the figure was a woman. And there was something wrong with one of the eyes. And he was kind of taking the sarcophagus with him. And I woke up, and it was just a weird dream. And, and you know, I would have these types of experiences. And I found out that my parents, who were upstairs in the master bedroom, and there's no way I could have heard this. They got a call around the same time that morning that my my uncle's wife. So my uncle had passed away, but his wife was in Pakistan, ten thousand miles away, and had passed away that morning. And so it became obvious to me that you know he was there to collect her. And turns out she was this big burly woman, and one of her eyes had this weird condition where it was almost all white, you could barely see the eyeball and and then it made sense to me what the, what I was seeing in the dream. It didn't make sense while I was in the dream, but at least I recognized something was off and so I would have these types of experiences, and they would convince me that there's more going on here than meets the eye, and so that's why i've been able to you know uh to, to keep a balance but yeah i mean the, the standard what I've learned is there is a stigma around this stuff. the stigma is lessening because of the recent uh, Pentagon uh, revelations. And so there is a deference to authority in the scientific community, even though science is not supposed to necessarily be about deference to authority, it's supposed to be about investigating. Uh, and, and it's great to see that there are some number of folks in the scientific community who are starting to, to question these things.
0: You know, the Pentagon has been lying, the Defense Department, about this subject for 80 years. 80 years, Riz. And we we are supposed to still trust them in any way? I I think it's out of control and needs to be revised from top to bottom. It doesn't work. Uh, And I am very much concerned about how well our military will work if we need it. If, for example, the Chinese invade Taiwan, I think there's a high probability that we will not be able to prevent that. And that we will lose our position in the in the Pacific as a result. And I think that's exactly why they're going to go after Taiwan, because they know that this will happen, or they feel it will happen. And it's be- basically because the Defense Department doesn't work at any level. Uh, it also has, it claims that they have lost track of an enormous number of assets and that they can't balance their books year after year, they announce more money is missing. And what that is, I don't think they, I think they can balance their books. I don't think they've lost their assets and I don't think they've lost track of the money. I think that there is something huge that we, the people are paying for. And when we begin to look at these UFO images that are coming and the Statements of people like David Grush. Uh, what we're seeing is not even the tip of the iceberg, but the tip of the tip of the iceberg. And what are they hiding? You know, when you look at a UFO moving across the sky, and I'm going to ask, this is the question I've been leading up to. I can be very devious about these questions. You have to be careful. <laughs> are we looking at, a machine moving through the sky or are we looking at a point that is moving across this three-dimensional reality but actually has its origin in a higher dimensional or a more or a, a, a richer dimensional reality and I'm, I'm referring to if we were a two-dimensional species and only could see a flat line a sphere going through would appear going through that line would appear to us to be at first a dot that would expand into a large wide line and then come back to become a dot and nothing we could say about it could ever actually describe what we had seen are we in the same position with ufo's are we looking at something that is peeking at us from outside the simulation, the gamers themselves. uh, uh,
1: Yeah, and I think that's a very likely scenario. And this is part of the reason why I think there's been this mystery for so long. And, you know, part of the issue is, as you said, there's this huge bureaucracy, but they're also not bringing in the best and brightest scientists, right? When I talk to scientists at MIT and Harvard and other places, they don't have, they're not privy. To, these, uh, to some of these classified programs. Unlike say the Manhattan Project where they brought in the best and the brightest from all over the country, right? And so other scientists knew what was going on because they had been recruiting from their ranks. And, and here we have a different situation. But I do think that what we're seeing is sometimes like a holographic projection or like in a video game, things get rendered and sometimes they take time to get rendered and sometimes they can de-render and move to another place. And so in a video game, for example, we can have you and I can be in the same field and we can be looking up and there can be nothing in the sky. And then suddenly a UFO can be materialized there and it'll slowly be rendered. And your character, you know, Whitley, because you're at level 50, you can see it easily. And my character might only be at level three. So maybe I can't see it. And, and you know, when I when I talk to Jacques Ballet and others about UFO sightings, There are stories like this that come into play where one person can see it and others can't. Or you see stories where people are looking up and the thing slowly materializes. Now, one explanation is it's a cloaking device, but that's still thinking within our our 3D reality. The other explanation is that it was somewhere else and it's materializing right then and there. And some of the movements are so abrupt that they almost look like it's, it's it's a holographic image that's moving from one place to the other. Now, that doesn't mean... They don't come to have a physical reality in our dimension. So I'm not saying that they're necessarily illusions. What I'm saying is that they they get rendered into our reality for a period of time. I remember talking to Jacques about one case that he investigated in Northern California where he said, you know, the witnesses described the UFO coming down at a 45 degree angle and then it left some marks on the ground. And he went there and he looked at the spot and he said, well, if it came down at a 45 degree angle, there's all these huge redwood trees. It would have had to go through the redwood trees. And they said, yeah, that's what it did. But we didn't want to tell that to anybody because they would think we're crazy, right? Right. (laughs) And 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 that is very much like when you render in a video game, you can walk through walls, you can do things until your 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 character is fully rendered, and then you are subject to the physical rules while you're rendered in that scene. So I think this you know the video game analogy has relevance for the UFO subject as well. And you know, when I talked to Lou Elizondo at the, the Galileo project meeting last year, you know, and he, he he very much, you know, said that this this I we're still considering these different theories, one of which is that somehow it's somewhere in the mind, which I take to mean it's being rendered in the mind, which is the same way. Like, you and I aren't really talking to each other right now. Right? Of course I am. You to, know that. I, I'm, I'm talking to my computer, and it's being rendered on your screen, and you are talking to your computer, and I'm being rendered. So each of us has a computer where we're rendering reality that is very much like the conversations that we're having today.
0: Well, you know, we, there's a, uh, yeah, well, you know what there is? There's a time, there's time for a break. We're going to take another break. And alas, free listeners, I remembered the break for once. So you've got to watch some commercials. We'll be right back. Them, Mitch Horowitz calls it in the preface, among the most important interpretations of visitor phenomena since Jacques Vallée's Passport to Magonia in 1969. Dr. Vallee says in his foreword, the book cites fact after fact to build the case for in-depth realignment of public policy and public need. Diana Walsh Pasolka, author of American Cosmic says, leads the way and it's best that we listen because the stakes have never in higher. Earth Tech International President Hal Putoff says, Them is exceedingly valuable. Leslie Kane, author of UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record, says, Groundbreaking in the truest sense of the word. Bigelow Aerospace VP Colm Kelleher says, Searing and masterful. Them. Available as an audiobook on Audible.com, Apple Books, and Amazon. Available as a hardcover and paperback everywhere. Available as a Kindle on Amazon.com. And you can go to UnknownCountry.com and order all of my books. Where are we going? Where have we come from? What secrets have been buried? What secrets have been lost? What is the truth? about the Close Encounter experience. You have never heard any of this before. Them. This is Whitley Streber. Listen to me now from June of 2010 talking to Alan Lammers about an incredible thing that happened to him on the island of Sulawesi in Indonesia. Here you are in South Sulawesi in the little town in the district of Sandhu Batu. You were What happened? You were told something rather strange.
1: Well, we were told before we went, um, like my, my friends that I work with, in, with the NGO, they told me that when you pack, because it kind of happened by accident, I went out to buy a raincoat. It rains quite a bit in this part of the world. And so I went out and I bought a yellow raincoat. And my friend said, I'm sorry, you can't, you can't take that to Walla Walla. And I said, well, why not? And he says, well, it's th- you can't wear that color. So anyways, excuse me. So I thought, okay, well, what colors can I wear? They, they said, well, you can only wear black or white. You cannot wear any bright colors, no bright green, especially no yellow and you know, that's all you should bring. And I, and I said, well, what would happen? And they said, well, uh, people disappear.
0: You will find the rest of that story, and it is brain-bending, in the June 5th edition of Dreamland, June 5, 2010 edition of Dreamland in the archive. This archive is one of the richest of its kind in the world, probably is the richest of its kind in the world, filled with extraordinary shows, of which this show is certainly one, this show with Alan Lammers. You will never have heard anything like it. It does what Dreamland is here to do. It opens your mind to the fact that we live inside a hidden reality that we prefer not to acknowledge, but not here. Here on unknowncountry.com, we do acknowledge it. We live in it and we love it. Subscribe today. You can't go wrong. Go to unknowncountry.com right now and get started. We're talking to Riz Virk, his new book, Wisdom of a Yogi, uh, a wonderful book about uh, Yogananda. And I think you can tell by what we're talking about that it's really very relevant to the world we live in and what that world means right now. Uh, because we can't, we're, we're, we're having a deep discussion about UFOs. Why? Because we are beginning to learn that in this simulation in which we live, somebody's peeking in from the outside and that's what these ufos are and they can manifest they can materialize in the in in the physical world but they don't do it readily and they don't do it often and if you look at the fact that the united states apparently has 12 crashed discs and quite a few physical remains of bodies you can see why it's very dangerous for them, them to come in here because there's an imbalance of some kind that they are very vulnerable to. And it may have something to do with the magnetic field of the planet or an excessive amount of piezoelectric energy in the, in the atmosphere at times during storms and so forth. We don't know. But they're, they are penetrating from somewhere. And I want you to imagine, Riz, if you will, open your wonderfully disciplined imagination and imagine what the world they come from would be like. And go ahead and think of this in the context of Maya's palace or Plato's cave, and what's it like outside?
1: Well, you know, even within the 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 Judeo-Christian traditions, you know, there are beings that are not in our world, but they can enter our world. And you know, in the Islamic traditions, there's this idea of jinn, or which we would call a genie, as in you know, most people know it from, you know, the movie Aladdin, where uh, you know Robin Williams <laughs> or right. Will Smith, depending on which version you're talking about. But you know, there's a long tradition of these other beings being there and interpenetrating in our world.
0: But they don't always in in, in Gnosticism. It's the archons.
1: That's right. Yes, and there's the archons as well. And 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 sometimes these beings have a different conception of time than we do, even though they're able to kind of you know jump into our time and then move back and forth. And you know, there's a there's a great story. You know, in autobiography of a yogi, which is one of the stories that I remember years later. Where there was this Muslim fakir who's like a, a holy man who learned a technique to control uh, an invisible entity like a jinn named Hazrat, and he would have this this jinn actually take an object from the material world and make it disappear. He could use it to. He used it for purse uh, for selfish reasons. He ended up, you know, he he ended up like using it to to get gold and get uh, railroad tickets for free. This was back in the 1800s, and he became a notorious figure. All over north northeast India in Bengal, they called him the terror of Bengal because he would show up and suddenly your jewels would disappear. But they would happen after because he would go have Hazrat go take them and bring them to him. Uh, and you know there, there, but there have been stories like this uh, where you can where they can make an object disappear and then reappear somewhere else. And then you know it turns out in in autobiography of Yogi. For this particular character, this was a karmic test, and the test was that he had been, you know, kind of a greedy person in a past life, and he ended up uh, failing the test because he ended up using these other entities, these jinn, if you will, for personal reasons. And so, it was an interesting story, and I I bring it up in the context of, of other beings that that might see reality differently. And you know, in my book, the simulated multiverse, I talk about this idea that there may be multiple simulations, with multiple timelines running, and that you can go back and you can change things in the simulation earlier. So you can you can have these weird inconsistencies, and then you can rerun the simulation. It was kind of what what Philip K. Dick had been talking about in his famous speech in Metz, France, where he said we are living in a computer programmed reality. And the only clue we have to it is when some variable is changed, some alteration occurs in our reality. We would have the sense of deja vu that we were reliving the same moments again and again. And so he, he contended that there were entities. He talked about programmers and counter programmers that could go back and change a variable and rerun the timeline again. And, and his, his uh, famous book, the man in the high castle was turned into a series on Amazon. Uh, you know about an alternate timeline where Germany and Japan won the war, and a lot of that, you know, tying this all back to your question about the UFOs and what's outside the simulation is I, you know, I think there are beings that can go back in time, and in the Islamic traditions, the jinn are allowed to do this, they're allowed to go back and change physical objects, they're not necessarily always allowed to change our memories. Uh, like one of the reasons why uh, there was a Sufi priest who said, One of the reasons why. In Islam, the priests all memorized the Quran word for word. Well, first of all, because it was 1,600 years ago. But said the second reason is, because I always wondered, why not just read it? It's written down. And basically said, well, because the jinn are allowed to change physical objects, but they're not allowed to necessarily change our memory, which reminds me of the Mandela effect with the biblical changes that folks have been writing about. And so so that's kind of a, I know, a long-winded answer there to your question. But I feel no, that's like a good answer. It's yeah, um, there are beings that 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 can impact things in, in a different time scale than we think of
0: things. You know. In the summer of 2018, I went to the Lakota Sioux Pine Ridge Reservation for a conference. And I have written about this in my book, A New World. While I was at that conference, I had the extraordinary experience of every time I closed my eyes, I was seeing another version of this of the world. I was seeing it in great detail uh, to the point where I could lean down or sit down and look at the roadside with the little clovers and things on the roadside and close my eyes and see different gravel and different clovers and open them and then I went to a Sundance, which was a great privilege because these are private family affairs and you don't get invited to them very often. And I was um, at the Sundance by this time, this was just amazing what was going on, that every time I closed my eyes, I could see in, in detail into a different world. It was just extraordinary. And um, at the Sundance, when I closed my eyes, I was, I was standing in front of the Sundance and the sun dancers were there. And I, when I closed my eyes, suddenly the sound and the Sundance itself were gone. And the, the little uh, clearing was empty. And it was coming from down below a hill n- nearby. There was a little bluff. And the Sundance was taking place in another part of the other universe. And even the sound would move. So, when I opened my eyes, I could see the Sundance. It was right in front of me. When I closed them, it was down across, away down the hill. Well, I went back to California. I mean, to, to came back here and was riding down. I was asleep one morning at about six. And suddenly I was not asleep anymore. I was riding a bicycle down Montana Avenue. It was not my bicycle. It was a nice bicycle. I was on it. It was a physical experience. I as I moved along, I realized that the lights were differently designed than the street lights that we see. And I was in another version of this another universe. I telephoned a friend. I grabbed my cell phone out of my pocket because I was now dressed and, and fully dressed and riding this bicycle. And called a friend and started describing. I said to him, Jay, I'm in another universe. I am calling you from literally another universe. And I described the streetlights, which were differently designed. And he said, well, you're not telling me anything I don't know. And I thought to myself, of course I'm not. He's, I'm talking to the one version of my friend that's in this universe. But then I returned. I ended up back in my bed. And a moment later, I was, but this time I was in my car, but it was clearly a different version of it. And it was much more vivid than a lucid dream. And uh, I thought, my God, now I'm in the car. I'm going to drive through this other world and explore it. And I drove out of the parking lot and down to the, down to the main street and was soon pulled over by a policeman who wanted to know whether or not i knew the rules of the road and i he gave me a clipboard with a list of questions A Q&A on it to determine whether or not i knew the rules of the road he knew obviously knew that i was not from his universe only the problem was the language on the clipboard was in, unrecognizable to me the word the the letters weren't in they weren't uh recognizable in any way so i couldn't answer any of the questions and he said well you'll have to you'll have to go back and then I, and i was in my bed again and that was it but then I discovered I could, fi- I could look into this universe anytime I wanted to if I was in bright sunlight and the sun was like conscious energy coming into me and I could open my, close my eyes and open them into the other universe. And I got good at that. And I began to almost enter it physically until all of a sudden, one night, this very strange thing happened. And I I can't even describe it, except that it involved these rows of lights and a definite feeling of menace that was strong, that I did not belong doing this. And the next thing I knew the next day, in the eye that is the right eye, which is so important to me for other reasons that my listeners know about how I function, which is very different from now many people. I was mostly blind and I still am. They blinded me. Now, all of that said, I think this other universe is right here and it's physical. Is there any scientific support for an idea like that?
1: Well, first of all, that's a fascinating story. And, you know, you had mentioned parallel universes to me in the past, but not that specific, that specific story. And so within the scientific community, you know, one of the biggest mysteries in quantum mechanics is is called quantum indeterminacy. And one of the ways they explain it is uh, through this idea of many probabilities and the wave collapsing. To a single reality. This is called the observer effect. I'm sure your your listeners have heard of it. But the other popular explanation is the multiverse idea. And the idea is that every time we make a choice, there's two versions of us that split off. And there's at least at least one other version of us. And, and in my book, The Simulated Multiverse, I, you know, the idea could this idea stuck in my head and it wouldn't leave me that if there can be one simulation, there can just as easily be many simulations, right? Because all you would have to do, literally the reason we run simulations, people often ask me what, why would somebody run a simulation? And I say, well, think of two questions. One, why do we play video games? Okay, that's primarily for fun and to have experiences we can't have outside the game, but why do we run simulations? Well, we never run a single simulation. We always change the variables and run the simulation to see where it would go, uh, and like if we're doing a simulation of the weather, or we're doing a simulation of a pandemic, or we're doing a simulation of a society to see who's going to win a war, right, we would let it run through to a certain point. And so there is support that there are potentially entirely other timelines. I mean, this summer... You know, I'm, a, I'm a fan of science fiction, and so many of your listeners may have seen the recent, you know, there's a Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, and then there's a new The Flash movie, which brought back the old Batman, Michael Keaton, which was explained by having a, a different timeline where Michael Keaton was Batman. And so, you know, not not to get this too far into the pop culture world, but it's a way to understand that, in fact, science does support the idea that there may be multiple timelines that have evolved differently. So you could have a universe that's adjacent to ours that's similar in most ways, except that the lights are different, the driving rules are different and perhaps the language and characters that they use are are different as well. So there was a different evolution of that. Now, you seem to have found perhaps one of these escape hatches, right? Where where you are perhaps a, you're able to go and perceive one of these other timelines. Now, scientists don't agree on how that would work. But the point is that if we can use the observer effect to collapse reality here, there's no reason that, and in my view, using the video game analogy, you can pause this game, you can easily rerun the other game to see where it is. And you can kind of experience that for a little while, uh, but you may have been assigned to this game, so that might have, you know, it's possible that you you ran across some uh, some folks that were supposed to be monitoring who is supposed to be in this game or that game. Uh, yeah. It, so I, I find it fascinating. Yeah.
0: Well, I have another version of myself in the other game, and uh, uh, that was eventually I came to understand that the reason they were so upset was that. You know, it was one thing for me to be able to look into it, but of course, being me, instead of just looking into it, I actually went into it, meaning that I had caused a, a, a s- definite imbalance because there were now two pieces in the other on the other game board where there should only have been one, and a piece was missing on this game board. And that was just something that, for whatever reason, and I'm sure there were many reasons, they just felt like, Obviously, he's going too far. It's nothing new. Uh, we'll have to, we'll have to rein him in again. Um, like uh, I was once in a UFO, and the first thought in my mind was, "I want to steal it." And I heard from behind me. I didn't know there was anyone in it. But I knew there was someone beside me, but not behind me. I heard this funny laugh go. Oh. Like there was somebody back there who could read my mind and heard the thought and was just (laughs) laughing at the idea. Anyway, well, I certainly would steal one if I got the chance. Now, we have been talking about many different things and kind of talking around something. And that something is Yogananda. And I want to now talk about Yogananda and who he was. Because this is one of the most important figures of the 20th century, and certainly one of the most important spiritual figures who's ever lived. So tell us a little bit about how he came to be Yogananda, and then we're going to find out what that means.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, he he was uh, uh, born at the end of the, the 19th century, and he always had these visions as a kid of seeing himself as uh, seeing himself as a, 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 a Swami wearing you know the monk's robe and every time he had these visions he tried to run away from home to the Himalayas because he thought that 's what these visions were telling him was that he was going to go become a wandering monk in the cave in the Himalayas and of course his family had to retrieve him because he was too young to be going off on his own and so there are some great colorful stories in his autobiography of how his older brother Ananta chased him across northern India, across the railway lines, uh, you know, to try to bring him back. But, you know, there's a lesson in this for all of us, because in the end, he ended up finding his his guru, Sri Yukteswar, only a few miles from Calcutta, where he was being raised, and he spent his entire childhood thinking he had to run off to the Himalayas. And many of us think that, that we have to run off to the Himalayas or someplace like that to find our spiritual path but often our spiritual path finds us where we are and there are many modern stories of folks like steve jobs who went all the way to india you know looking for spiritual enlightenment and in his hostel room somebody had left a copy of autobiography of the yogi and he brought it back and then he read that book every year afterwards and when he died it was the only book according to his biographer on his ipad at that point in time and then when he uh when he Uh, After he died at his funeral, uh, we learned from the CEO of Salesforce.com that he gave everyone a small wooden box. He took the box home, he opened it up, and there was a copy of Autobiography of a Yogi in there. And so, you know, this became one of the most passed around books, certainly of the 1960s and 70s. Uh, And so Yogananda came to America in 1920. He was a young swami. And uh, he came to a Congress of world religions where he gave a speech on Hinduism and it wasn't at that point it wasn't clear that this young Swami was going to make a huge difference in introducing yoga to the West. In fact, he rarely had given a lecture and he had almost never spoken uh, in, in English publicly and yet he was coming to America to give a lecture in English. and you know turns out this was part of his life task uh, and, and you know I make the lesson in the book that sometimes we all have assignments that are given to us by the universe, whether we're ready or not. And we don't always feel qualified, uh, you know, to, to go after that. And certainly that was the case with Yogananda, but he had enough clues, enough visions telling him that this was the right way to go. And so he spent much of his adult life as a monk wandering, but not around the Himalayas. He spent much of his adult life wandering around the U S on trains in those days. And, you know, he met with, uh, you know, president uh, Coolidge, you know, back in the day, and the president of Mexico, he gave talks all over, uh, and then he had some setbacks, which we can talk about later. But later, let's, he ended up uh, writing this book. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. no, yeah. let's talk about the setbacks. I think it's at the right yeah. times now. So-
1: yeah, well, you know, this is an important part of his story, and you know, sometimes people look at his book autobiography of yogi, and it was so successful, they think, oh, he must have lived this magical life, and he did. But he was human like everybody else and he had huge setbacks. And at one point, you know, after he had built up his organization, he had brought over his friend Swami Dharananda from India to kind of run things in in Los Angeles while he was out traveling. And then there was this giant scandal. That erupted because one of the the husbands of one of the women who had been studying there was upset and came in and hit Yogananda on the nose because he thought he was having an affair with his with 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 his wife, which turns out not necessarily to be the case. But there was this ho- huge scandal because at that time, I mean, you're talking about the 1920s, right? And 1930s. Not only was yoga new, the whole idea of Indian philosophy was relatively new, and I mean, there were times when Yogananda c- couldn't teach black and white. Uh, you know, students in the same room when he was traveling around the U.S. And so you had this brown guy in these funny robes, you know, chanting mantras and teaching about yoga, which was completely foreign. And so, you know, there was this huge scandal across all the papers. Uh, And then his, his, you know, his friend Swami Dharananda broke away from his organization and basically left Yogananda at a low point in his life where he's like, I've spent, you know, all these years uh, building up this organization and everything fell apart. And you know, he ended up going to Mexico to meditate for a while and he was just praying, you know, let me just go back to India. Forget about this mission in America. It's, it's too difficult. But that setback was you know an important part of his life and that he then began to look for different ways that he could really make an impact. And so he gathered a smaller group of students and he spent his last decade of his life writing this book uh, autobiography of a yogi uh, in Encinitas, right? Not not too far from, from where you yeah, are. I, I know the
0: place very well. It's it's known as Swami's to this day. <laughs> yeah, the Swami's beach is what it's called, <laughs> where the right. her,
1: her hermitage is still there. And so, uh, you know, he wrote it in his office overlooking the Pacific Ocean. And, uh, you know, as part of writing this book, the hermitage was closed because of COVID. And, and I, you know, I had been given this assignment to write this book and so i i went i wanted to go and check out the room where he wrote autobiography of the yogi and it turns out srf the self realization fellowship decided to open it up for me that day during covid which was a, a, you know a nice big clue to me that this is the right way to go and so i was able to go and sit in that room and kind of meditate with myself and a couple other uh, monastics who live there uh, with the ocean, uh, you know, the waves of the ocean, and I found myself drifting into a trance state. And, you know, I ended up having a vision of Yogananda while I was there uh, that was tailored to me. Like, I feel like we often get subjective visions, but those visions have messages for us. And in this case, he, he had a stack of papers where he had written out, you know, he used to write out Uh, the book with a pen, and then it would get typed up later. And he took it and he showed it to me and he opened the door from his office, which looks out over the Pacific ocean. And to my horror, he took these papers and he tossed them out over the Pacific ocean. And I was like, wait, what are you doing? (laughs) That's the book. It'll get lost. And then what happened was that all the pages these white pages of the book turned into white doves and they went out all over, you know, all over the world. And he, he was sending me a message about his, for him, his writing. And for me too, as a writer, it was a message tailored to me that these pages are important that they will be your messengers when you're gone, you know, and then also don't, don't hold on to it. Somebody pointed this out to me recently. And there was also a message there about don't hold on too tightly. You have to put this out out into the world and, and let these things go out there, and so so I had this very strong vision, which which was a confirmation to me that it was important that I write write this book, which was actually uh, commissioned by Harper Collins India on the seventy fifth anniversary of Yogananda's book. They reached out to me and said. Well, you know, we'd like you to write something about a more modern interpretation that uses modern technology like video games and uh, social media analogies for you know, newer generations, but also to revisit these tales, uh, which seem unbelievable to many modern seekers with a scientific mind. And, you know, my initial thought was, wait, you want me to write this book? I'm not a salami. I'm a businessman, an entrepreneur. I'm a technologist. Uh, but, you know, it turns out that part of my story also had some setbacks in my health, you know, which I describe a bit of in this book. But during one of those setbacks, I sat around and reread Autobiography of Yogi and wrote a few blog posts about what to read next that are stories of swamis and, and gurus and miracles and levitating swamis and you know, bi-locating swamis. <laughs> there are all these interesting stories. Uh, and they had read these, plus they had seen my book about the simulation. And, and And at that point, I had another clue. I had a strong electric feeling that, oh, this is actually an important task. You know, just if even if you don't feel qualified to do it, Yogananda didn't feel qualified to come to the US and give talks yet, he ended up having a big impact. And so, this was my way to add a little bit uh, to the East and West. You know, he came from the East to the West, and now his book has gone back to India. So, it was published originally in India earlier this year, and now is available, you know, in the US and around the world on Amazon and other places as well.
0: Okay. Free Dreamlanders, uh, those of you who are listening to the show on the free side, it's come to the end of the show. And for subscribers, we're going to keep on. We're going to be talking about some of the powers that Riz just made reference to. Because this is, th- there is an extraordinary reality here. Just as I slipped into the edge of another world, there are people with more, way more capability. It didn't sort of blunder into anything. And they bring powers, extraordinary powers, into this world. Uh, Yogananda was one of them. And we'll talk about those powers in just a few minutes. As always, those of you listening on the free side, thank you so much for being part of the Dreamland family. And I urge you to go to unknowncountry.com and enjoy the news and the free message board and all of the free things that we have to offer. Riz's new book is Wisdom of a Yogi. His website is zenentrepreneur.com. You can click on it through the Dreamland homepage. And I urge you to do so because this is material that is very, very well worth getting involved with. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.